I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. Okay, pop quiz. What does your morning cup of coffee or tea, kombucha, sourdough bread, chocolate, and black pepper have in common? Well, they're all fermented foods. And fermentation has been used by cultures all over the world, not only to preserve foods, but to change their flavors and make them more healthful for our bodies. But did you know that fermented foods have had an impact on culture, how people live and interact with one another for thousands of years? Well, I hope you enjoy this Deep Roots Radio conversation with Dr. Julia Skinner, the author of Our Fermented Lives, A History, How Fermented Foods Have Shaped Cultures and Community. Well, Julia Skinner, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Deep Roots Radio. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You know, Julia, uh, over the years, and we've been doing this show for almost 14 years now, we've had the opportunity to talk to so many experts from across the country, providing their own perspectives on what affects um, what we grow, the food we eat, and that connection with our agriculture. And so it was terrific to see your book um, and to see that you make that connection between fermented food and our fermented lives and how this has affected cultures and communities. So before getting into that, I'd like to know, how did you get into fermented food? What kind of spiked your interest? I think I had, you know, as as many of us, uh, as many of, of us have experienced, I kind of started with one thing. I had a garden with too many vegetables in it, right? And um, in my case, it was cabbage. Um, I think many people start out with a glut of cabbage. <laughs> and that's kind of how we start our forays into fermentation. But I started making sauerkraut and then started kind of getting curious about other things. I started making yogurt and then I was like, huh, I could make meat and I could make like these pickles and I could, you know, it it just kind of, it ballooned out. Um, And now, you know, I have probably 50 to 100 projects going, you know, at any one time. Um, Yeah, so it's definitely, it's grown a lot since then. (laughs) Now, was it because you were liking the flavors? It's because you were kind of fascinated with all these bubbles coming up in in whatever <laughs> containers you had. What was it that kind of? Yes, you, you started with a, a surplus of a of a vegetable, but what kind of got you interested in that fermentation process? So you know, it's it's an interesting question because I think the answer kind of informs the way I structured this book. You know, I started from 
the perception of I need to preserve all this stuff, right? I have all, you know, all of these things. I want to preserve them. I don't want to waste them. It was at a time when I didn't have a lot of money. So preserving what I had was very important. Um, but then, I mean, like you said, it's like there's these cool bubbles and there's kind of this like mystery and intrigue to it and it tastes good and it's, you know, it makes you feel good when you eat it. And so I started out from this very, you know, kind of practical, pragmatic, like, you know, I have I have a problem, the solution is preserving it. Um, and then it just, it grew into all of the different ways that, you know, my fermented life, <laughs> you know, became, uh, became what it is. And then, you know, from there, I started to think about that more holistically. So, you know, how how all of us have had this experience of like, oh, this tastes really interesting. Oh, this tastes cool. Oh, fermentation does this. Oh, these bubbles are really neat. You know, it's, it captures our imaginations in so many ways. One of the things that I found kind of fun, and, and I love the writing in your book. It is well, thank you. so understandable, so approachable. And the fact that your book, Our Fermented Lives, A History of how fermented foods have shaped cultures and communities. You've got loads of recipes in there so that we can try it ourselves. But you also come from that perspective of a historian. So has this kind of melded both that skill and this passion and flavor for foods? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, something that I noticed, so my background is in um, – library science, that's what my PhD is in, but with a very historical focus. And so I've done a lot of history research. And what I find interesting about studying food history is that it's a history of the everyday. It asks us to envision ourselves as active participants in that history because we are. And so part of including the recipes as well as talking about the history is to kind of bring that home for people, to be like, look, like, you too are making this history, literally, in your kitchen. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting in that um, several years ago, my husband and I began making wine from the grapes that grew on our thickets. So these were wild mm-hmm. grapes. And subsequently, my husband planted just a couple of rows of grapes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started making wine. And his favorite aspect is that initial fermentation when things are bubbling and just going through the roof. And he's fascinated. He says, this is like magic. This is like working with with microbes. Is that what you find as well? Yes, yes. And I love the, you know, the, the correlate to magic because if we look at the history of fermentation, there are a lot of, you know, a, a lot of kind of cultural mythologies and things around, you know, like, you know, these these incantations that you would speak over the beer or the wine so it would turn out well, and, you know, these gods and goddesses that protect it, and it's like, you know, it's this very sacred, uh, very magical thing, and, you know, when you look at it, I mean, I agree with your husband, like, it does, it's, it seems like you are participating in magic, because you are, like, you're you're participating in this magic that we've been doing for, you know, tens of thousands of years, um, and, yeah, it's it is it is so very magical to me. And I think something else that's magical is that it's a lot of times when we're cooking, we imagine ourselves as being the one who's directing everything. Like, I am heating the pan. I am putting all the stuff in the pan. I will cook it for this long. 
you know, we we tend to think we have control over everything, but we are collaborating when we are making uh, ferments. And so part of the magic is in the collaboration and the giving up of our perceived control. Like we can we can make an environment that works well for a certain thing, but especially with wild fermentation, right? Like I, I can't guarantee how it's going to turn out. Yes. So just that aspect, you can't guarantee how it's going to turn out. Um, and, and it can turn out differently depending on what you put into the jar mm-hmm. from one batch to the next is my understanding. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's, there's so many complicated, you know, microbial communities on everything all the time, all around us that, yeah, there's so much possible variation. And it's, it's, it's interesting because most of the time when I make sauerkraut in my house, it turns out beautifully. It's wonderful. You know, everything's great. And then once in a while I get a cabbage that I, you know, I don't know, had, you know, has something growing on it and it, tastes awful it's mushy it's <laughs> and you know but then you learn and you know like okay maybe I don't get cabbages in that place anymore or maybe yeah. you know maybe I you know need to double check that I like clean this jar well enough or you know whatever you know you talk about cabbage but let's get to uh, one of the aspects that you refer to a lot in your book which mm-hmm. is the range of fermentations when we talk about fermentation it's not just making sauerkraut or kimchi is it what range of foods do we encounter every single day in most of our lives that are actually fermented? Oh my goodness. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny because every time I give a book talk and I like start to spout out this list, I see people's faces kind of go like, wow, I had no idea. Is it uh-huh. such a wide range? There's, you know, obviously there's, there's the ones we know about. So, you know, sauerkraut, wine, beer, all, you know, all of that. Um, but then there's, you know, bread, there's cheese, there's various cured meats, chocolate, vanilla. I mean, like, you know, so many different things. Uh, fish sauce, um, soy tea sauce. Tea and coffee. Tea and coffee, <laughs> miso. Like it's, a, you know, like, it's a very long, like, you eat fermented food, you know, probably every day, whether or not you realize it. Why do you think people started fermenting foods? And that really gets to the heart of your book its history and how it affects culture and a community. Why did people start doing this and when was that? You know, it's it's interesting and it's one of the things that, you know, as a historian, I wish I had a time machine to go back and kind of see the moment of, you know, that light bulb coming on for somebody. Um, because what we don't know is whether or not it was you know, fully intentional or a happy accident. And because fermentation kind of, you know, happened in multiple places at multiple times, there's probably instances of both, right? Um, But where we start to see fermentation really become entrenched in communities is when we see the rise of agriculture. Because if you think about it, if you're moving around, you can't really take, you know, this big vat of fermenting whatever with you as easily. I mean, I guess you could, but it wouldn't be very fun. Um, so once people are in more static communities, you know, about 10,000 years ago or so, is when we start to see fermented products really coming to the fore. Um, mm. And there's, you know, there are arguments that it was purely for preservation, but I think the answer is more complicated than that because we are 
we are experts at preserving food, right? Prior to this, we were we were drying grains and we were, you know, like it's not like we didn't know how to preserve things and eat them later. And mm. so I think part of it was, you know, there's a few possible things. One being fermentation reduces cooking times. That saves fuel. That's important if you're having to go haul wood and chop it and everything um, and build a fire. Um, there's flavor. There's, um, you know, that it does with things that are, you know, not shelf-stable like vegetables, that it does actually offer another preservative effect, um, you know, in addition to having dried versions. So, you know, every single chapter in this book, they're all organized thematically, and I think all of those had to do with the reasons why we started making these foods um, around about 10,000 years ago, but, you know, maybe earlier. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, uh, people sometimes think, well, fermented foods is about that fermentation, is about that preservation, rather. So you live in a climate, as I do here in Wisconsin, upper Midwest, mm -hmm. and you've got a growing season that's about six months long. And the rest of the time, mm -hmm. you're kind of, you know, wear muck boots and, mm -hmm. you know, heavy, heavy jackets. Things are not growing outside. But does fermentation, I mean, do people practice fermentation even in the warmer climates? Yes, and it's you know it's interesting you mentioned fermenting in Wisconsin just kind of as a side note because Iowa is where I started fermenting and yeah it was you know I'd have a very productive garden and then yeah nothing for you know, for months but even you know so I've lived in Florida I live in Georgia now um, which is definitely warmer uh, than the Upper Midwest um, but all around the world we see you know, every culture. Um, has at least one fermented food that they make. So, you know, and that may be for preservation. Um, in some cases, it may be for flavor. Um, in others, um, you know, I mean, the health benefits, even if people, you know, maybe weren't starting fermentation practices for the health benefits, you notice you feel better if you eat a lot of ferments. And so, you know, that kind of helps continue that too. And then the community aspect as well of making and serving them. So let me ask you that. Let's go to that health thing for just a minute. Yeah. What does fermentation do to a food that makes it more healthful for the person who eats it? So there's, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways in which specific ferments can impact our bodies, but when we talk about vegetable ferments, one you know one kind of easy entry point to understand this is to think about traditional vegetable ferments. So we're talking again like kimchi, sauerkraut, you know, kind of the the popular ones that we know. And with those, a lot of those traditional foods, they are both prebiotic and probiotic. So that means they have the fiber in them that feeds your microbiome, and then the probiotics that support your microbiome. And so. In eating these foods, you're nourishing your microbiome. And as we know, I mean, we're learning more all the time about what our microbiome does um, for our bodies, right? It's, you know, it, it impacts your mood even. It impacts your immunity. It's, you know, it's, it's something you really want to care for. Uh, in some cases, ferments can also make uh, certain nu uh, nutrients more bioavailable. They can help increase the presence of uh, B vitamins in some foods. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different ways they can influence your health. And I mean, again, we learn, you know, 
more and more about what exactly that looks like the more and more we study them. Yeah, that whole connection uh, between how healthy your internal microflora is or microbiome is um, Mm -hmm. and just the way your body is able to digest things better um, is, is just something that there are more and more books even coming out about that and a lot of more people studying it because it has such a huge impact. But it seems that lots of societies these days have lost connection with that kind of uh, relationship between fermented foods and their health. Do you find that that connection between fermented foods and culture, could you describe that a bit for us? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so there's, I started thinking about this years ago when I first encountered Sandra Katz's work, Um, you know, and he talks about, you know, culture kind of at the micro scale and the macro scale. So we have the culture of the, you know, the ferment we're working with and then our human culture. Um, And the two really, you know, overlap in some interesting ways. For example, you know, the foods that I make, the ingredients I have access to, the foods that are taboo and not, right, like all depends on where I am, um, you know, what culture I'm situated in. Um, and there's, you know, one of the big aspects of culture, you know, I kind of, culture is woven throughout the whole book, but I wrap up with thinking about community and, you know, I have a chapter at the end called The Future. Mm-hmm. and With both of those, my goal is to really help people see themselves in doing these practices as as active stewards of an ancient culture, right, or ancient cultures, plural. Um, Because, again, every culture in the world has these foods. These foods are traditional foods for, you know, all of us have some traditional food that's fermented, you know, somewhere knocking around in our lineage, um, and probably way more than one. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, this, you know, this sense of making the food in community, um, passing those traditions on, you know, is a form of cultural transmission. And I think making it in community is an especially powerful way to do that and to both share your culture as it is, as a living culture, and to honor all of the hands that went into making that food before you. Mm. So, so in your in your thinking and the kind of research that you've done, how important is food to a person's cultural identity? So, I I think from from the work that I've done, it seems to be very important. I mean. We all we all have to eat multiple times a day, um, and we all have our personal preferences, of course. But we're you know we're so deeply we're so deeply informed by the foods that you know are familiar to us that feel that feel comforting. So a non-fermented example of this has come up in my life this week. So my partner is Irish. Um, I'm American. And we were talking about traditional holiday foods, and I mentioned the sweet potato casserole that you serve with dinner that's got the marshmallows on top. And he was horrified. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, it's really comforting. And I'm like, oh, it's, you know, it's Christmas or whatever. Right. (laughs) Um, And 
you know, so that's, but it's, you know, it's for me, it's a very comforting food that speaks to, you know, my past and my heritage and my family. And it does not, it, it does not speak to that for him. And so it's, it's a very important part of, you know, our two different cultures. You know, there's, you know, there's other foods he probably eats that I, you know, I don't normally have. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's very, very, very personal. You know, one of the, the examples, I guess, from my own life is having um, had a childhood where my grandmother, and my background is Puerto Rican, where my grandmother would ferment a beverage called Mavi. And mm-hmm. we, we pronounced it M-A-V as in Victor, I. And this would sit in gallon jugs on an outside window ledge in the sunshine. And from the mouth of this jug would come all kinds of foam. (laughs) And uh, it was a very common sight. My grandmother made it all the time. And it was one of my favorite drinks. I don't know that she ever made other kinds of fermented food. None come to my mind. But Mavi is definitely something I love. And so as other people love kombucha, this was the drink, the fermented drink that we had um, in our household. And I would, you know, one of the things that comes to mind, and I don't know if I'm understanding this right, so you tell me, Julia, you know, one of the fermented foods that comes to mind when I think of Korea is kimchi. It's mm-hmm. so identified with that group. And when I think about some of the Ethiopian restaurants, even here in the upper Midwest, injera, mm-hmm. that flatbread that's used as a, as a plate, as a trencher to the mm-hmm. uh, mounds of of uh, legumes, cooked legumes that sit on top. I think of tempeh, uh, another mm-hmm. one which is a fermented uh, soybean. I don't know if it can be made from other beans, but they're I've made it from other beans. Yeah. Oh, have you? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's mm-hmm. good to know because I'd love yeah, that. Yeah, black-eyed peas, my favorite to make it with. No, really. You yeah, know, a ferment yeah. recipe that I saw in your book that I'm going to be trying this week is apple cider vinegar. Because Mm -hmm. you you refer to that as a way of reducing food waste in any Mm -hmm. home. And food waste is a huge, huge problem in the United States. You know, 40% or more of the food that we buy is wasted. So when it comes to fermentation and the notion of food waste, how do you see those things being tied together? Oh, my goodness. I mean, there's... So I think a lot about food waste um, and, you know, there's the way that I approach it is rather than trying to save every single scrap because, you know, I don't want to like use up a ton, a ton of energy trying to save every single thing um, when I have a compost pile, but saving as much as I can in like intentional and interesting ways that I'll actually use. And fermentation is one way that historically we've really been able to do that. So when we think about like I make a lot of infused liqueurs and infused vinegars and things. We're just like, you know, I've got some rosemary stems or some thyme stems or something. And all I have to do is like chuck them in some vinegar, let them sit for a few weeks. And there we go. We have a whole new product. Um, that's the, the gifts that my family gets every year are mm. all like, things like that, um, which is nice because it's, you know, it's low cost and low waste for me, but it's also a special homemade thing for them. You even go into fish and fish sauces mm-hmm. and meats. 
because these are the way that people were able to stay alive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we had we had to get protein. We had to we had to, you know, season our food. I mean, I you know, in researching this book, I I was I looked at ancient Roman garum, um, which is ancient Roman fish sauce and often flavored with herbs, and it was you know, it was very interesting because that was how they seasoned their food. So I think now when we think of food kind of from this area of Europe, we don't think of fish sauce, but in ancient times, that that's what they were using um, wow. because it stretched out their salt stores and helped them preserve the fish. And, yeah, I mean, like, so, you know, salting and curing meat and, you know, using, you know, using all of the techniques that we have for for preserving our meat. Yeah, I mean, made it so that we could have meat at times when we weren't slaughtering animals. Right. You know, we're we're coming almost to the end of our time together, and it happens fast, I know, in any of these mm-hmm. uh, conversations. But I had wanted to try to touch one more thing, which was the notion of community, how fermentation helps actually shape community. What do you mean by that? So it helps shape community in a few ways. We, you know, one is that we have these shared food traditions, but the way that I really like is, again, the opportunity to make and share these foods together. Because when we do that, we are we are making the food together one time. So we're building the community as we're making the food. So one kind of practice one could think about is kimjong, the kimchi making parties. So mm-hmm. we're making, you know, we're making all this kimchi together. We're preserving it. But then... We are we are nourishing the community again in the future because we've in, we've increased our food, food security. We've given ourselves a gift of something to eat later, and so our community is nourished multiple times through this one act. And that's mm. like there's there's many many ways I talk about community in this book, but that's the one that really like resonates with me the most. Well, Julia, I could sit and chat with you about this for for hours, especially about certain aspects. I know there was the role of women in fermentation that that really gets short shrift uh, Mm -hmm. throughout a lot of writing and a lot of history. Um, There's the notion of community and um, agricultural, where where people and what they decide to grow based on how much Mm -hmm. they can ferment, because that really has shaped so much of what our agriculture looks like. Mm-hmm. But for now, uh, for this conversation, can you provide people with an idea of where can they go to find out more? What would you suggest? So um, if, they want, if they want to learn the history, my book's a great place. I also really encourage them to look at uh, Sander Katz's book, um, Art of Fermentation, is a really good overview of like present day practices, like he really does a good job capturing a global snapshot of what fermentation looks like today. Um, And it's beautiful, very well written, uh, very informative. There's so many great fermentation authors out there. Kirsten and Christopher Shockey are another great example. Um, The Noma Guide to Fermentation and uh, David Zilber's work, also some favorites. So what about about your website? Yes, so my website, um, you can find me on uh, my newsletter at rootkitchens.substack.com or you can learn more about my classes and other offerings at root-kitchens.com. 
Dr. Skinner is also the author of Afternoon Tea, A History, and Cookbooks in Early Modern England. She is the founder and director of Root, a fermentation and food history company. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.